Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. My guest today is Mervyn Dinan, an analyst, author, and commentator on HR trends. Mervyn also has his own podcast called HR Means Business, so I'm sure I'll learn a few things about podcasting myself as we go along today. But more importantly, we're going to have a discussion about how organizations can build a world-class talent strategy. And this comes on the back of our recent People Strategy Network event that we hosted a couple of weeks ago here at IMI. So Mervyn, please go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you. Uh, yes, my name is Mervyn Dinan. I'm an analyst, uh, author, podcaster, content creator uh, around uh, HR and talent trends. Uh, I'm co-author of two books, uh, called one called Exceptional Talent, uh, the second book which was published last year called Digital Talent, uh, and about to start start work on a third book. Um, and yeah, I, most of my time is spent uh, researching trends around recruitment, retention, engagement, and kind of trying to understand what it is that makes our people and businesses tick. So Mervyn, during your session with us, you mentioned that there are a couple of key components for an effective recruitment process, especially in 2023 and beyond. So what are some of those components that an organization needs to keep in mind when they're developing their recruitment process? Uh, Right, well, uh, the world of recruitment is changing. Um, I think one of the things with the digital world we live in is is kind of, you know, uh, probably every week, if not every month, you know, something pop, pops up somewhere, be it on LinkedIn, be it on a digital news site, and suddenly everything's like changed, uh, and this whole new trend or something, yeah, quite, quite something or other. Um, I think the thing is to be on top of trends, and the, you know, the, what we know at the moment is that um, AI is clearly going to I won't say disrupt because it's not going to disrupt it at all. It's going to enhance the recruitment we do. Um, There is a talent shortage. We know that there is a skill shortage. Uh, The people that we want to um, attract and the people want to hire are much more interested in the kind of business we are to work for, much more interested in the opportunities they're going to get for development when they join. Um, And so we as organizations need to show a lot more of, of, of who we are uh, how we work, be a lot more transparent about that, and understand that that you know, what it is that that I suppose drives uh, talent in 2023 and beyond, uh, what what they look for, uh, and to offer that experience. You know, their lives are full of personalized experiences from from things they buy to things they watch to things they do uh, and then they apply for a job and it's it's a very almost impersonal kind of. Uh, process so it, it's offering that kind of personalized experience as well so they feel a they they know everything that they need to know about the organization and b they feel it's an organization that that they wish to be identified with i guess one of the reasons that the recruiting process feels a little bit impersonal is because you're passed around to different people within the organization while you're going through this process. So you might have a great experience with HR and then you're onto the hiring manager and it's just not as good. So in this kind of talent experience relay, how do companies make sure that candidates are having a fantastic experience right from the start to the end? Uh, by understanding, by understanding what what I always refer to and have written about in in the last book, the talent experience relay race. Um, what, the, what what 
what we put together in an organization is we have attraction. We probably have two or three stages maybe of interviewing. Some might be video interviewing. Some might be asynchronous. It might be person-to-person interviewing. Um, we then make an offer to somebody. There might be a time gap be- between be- before that person starts with us. Um, and we then uh, onboard them in some way. And on- onboarding is a podcast all on its own. But, I mean, it- it's we bring them into the business and then, you know, periodic times we review them and, and you know, that that it, it's not fit for purpose. And one of the main reasons is it, like like a relay race, the battle needs to be passed. And, you know, there's always somebody ready to drop the battle. So the first time it happens is really before they join us. And um, I did a session recently, as you know, and, and I, I shared an, an example of some research I saw a couple of years ago. Uh, where they were um, looking at uh, candidates who are going through a recruitment process and they were using a net promoter score to rate how they felt about the organization they were applying to at different stages from first hearing of or seeing a vacancy to uh, either being rejected or to being hired, you know, to their first three months working in the business. And the thing that came through loud and clear is that the two points where they were least engaged were between the first and second interview and after having accepted an offer before they started. And it's like you know, doing some more deep dive on this. Um, they looked at how the candidates felt about uh, the information they were getting, the speed with which things were happening um, and things like that. And the two points that, that where, where engagement was at its lowest were the two points where information was at its lowest. So, you know, the first, uh, first interview happens. Yes, we like you. We're going to speak, speak to you again. And then the candidate hears nothing. Um, and the second time, they're, they're unforgivable. They get an offer. They accept the offer. And they feel they're in the dark until they actually physically start. And in the digital world, onboarding, you're, you're, you're onboarding people from the first interview. Because once you take somebody from first to second interview, uh, they, they may be your new employee, but they're probably good enough to possibly be a future employee. So you're, you're, you're selling yourself to them. So it's a constant, uh, you know, 24, 7, 365. I think the, the quote that I use is from Brian Crop at Gartner about candidates wanting their, their nine to five to look like they're five to nine. Um, and the recruitment process needs to be like that. So it needs to be this, this completely ongoing, uh, they need to know where they stand. And the relay race part is this dropping of the baton, which tends to happen once somebody accepts an offer. And there is uh, one of the reasons behind this is what we call the hiring manager experience. And for the recruitment team, for the TA team and the HR team, recruitment is something they're doing all the time. For hiring managers, it's something they don't do very often. Uh, They might only do it once or twice a year or they might do it, you know, every couple of months. And so they're not aware they don't have talent acquisition and HR's overview of what's going on in the market. They don't get the information that TA and HR get from people like me about what candidates are looking for, what's best practice in the market. They're just kind of, I need to hire somebody and I'll I'll choose the person who's best for me. And it, it's kind of, it, it, there's an education piece that needs to take place internally. I probably answered three of your questions there, but anyway, I'm sorry. I guess we sometimes think that the experiences that will shape a candidate's view of the organization are the really big ones. Like, did I get the job or did someone do something really bad during the interview? But I guess that's not always the case. And what you're really talking about here 
is those more micro experiences that people have throughout the recruitment process. So can you give us a few more examples of micro experiences and tell us how and why they really shape a candidate's perception of the organization? I can do. Yeah, the the, the micro experiences are not the um, <clears throat> I mean, we we uh, we talk about candidate experience. We talk about employee experience. Uh, um, um, and it's it's almost like we're describing an, an ambience in a restaurant or something, something, you know, we're, we're a great place to work because of this and that. The micro experiences are the the dozens and dozens and dozens of daily interactions that people get uh, either when they're at work or either when they're applying for a role. And that is with the technology. It can be with, with you know, uh, third parties. It can be with lots of different things. Um, and one of the uh, things, there's research done by, uh, in the US by uh, doctors Chip and Dan Heath, uh, whose uh, book, uh, or have written a few books, but the one that I recommend is one called The Power of Moments. And that looks at how the smallest moments can create this great experience. And so I uh, I always talk about peak and valley experiences. So if you have a really good experience, like you know, have a, you have a great interview, you get a real buzz from it. If you have a really bad interview, you get a really, a really negative. And the thing is that that you know the 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 negative feeling you get is is quite strong, but it doesn't last very long. Whereas the positive experience you get actually isn't as as if you like as big as the negative experience is deep, but it lasts longer, and that's what their research shows. So it's actually accepting that the odd negative interaction or experience might happen but it's maximizing the positive experience and that's maximizing what we call the moments that matter so what are the most important moments to a job candidate to an employee you know what are the bits where they really want like i said you know information flow understanding where they are in the process those kind of things and maximizing those experience uh, yeah, the hiring manager might take an extra few days to get back, but I mean, it's as long as everything else is a positive experience, um, that that that's it can be smoothed over. I think that if someone has a really negative experience with an organization, they're probably more likely to go off to social media, to LinkedIn, to Glassdoor, and write a terrible review of that company. And I think with sites like Glassdoor and like LinkedIn being so readily accessible, people are definitely doing their research more these days before they even apply to an organization and definitely before they accept a job offer. So what do you think companies can do to leverage social media for themselves in a good way? Obviously not bribing employees to write good Glassdoor reviews, but is there anything that companies can do for their employees to kind of help them show that it's a great place to work? Um, well, you can share stories. Um, I think that um, uh, more and more organisations are beginning to represent themselves. I, th- I think at, in the early days, and I can go back to, to the days when when it was kind of, you know, the beginning, I, I say the beginning of Twitter. I mean, it, the, the Twitter's emergence into kind of recruitment and HR was about 2009. Everybody started, well, I say everybody, people started using it. And there was this big fear that that you, you couldn't use it at work. You couldn't mention your company. If you set up an account, you couldn't say who you worked for. Um, I think we're, we're obviously well beyond all that now. Um, I call it Twitter. Obviously, I know it's X and I know that since it became X, it might not be as popular with some of the people listening. And I would agree with that. Um, 
but it, it social media gives organizations uh, an opportunity to to tell a, a positive story um about themselves um to encourage people to share um when i'm talking about you know the, the positive moments the interactions to encourage people to share that um yeah some candidates will take to social media they will um uh, linkedin is 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 a great place to showcase but you can very quickly amplify a bad experience on linkedin having said that uh, from the candidate point of view, they need to be quite careful what they put on LinkedIn because it's obviously seen by lots of other people. Um, and the next time they apply or the next time they consider for a role, people will look at what they put on LinkedIn. Um, so in that respect, it works both ways. But I think what um, the, 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 what the organization, the hiring company needs to do is use social media positively to give people obviously a good experience so they're, they're always aware of where they're on the process and things like that but also to be able to tell their story the story of what it's like to work there the story of of yeah what the organization does and how it does it what it stands for those kind of stories are very important um i, I give an example in one of my sessions of uh that that somebody told me when i was doing a, a presentation a few years ago and said that 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 they um, it really resonated with them because they uh, were, were going for a job. They're at final interview stage, and they were kind of felt they're about to be offered. So they were doing a bit of searching online uh, for the company, and they came across a mention on 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 a, a personal blog that somebody wrote. It was a a hobby blog um, about uh, photography. Um, and just in the introduction, it picked up that kind of uh, you'll see there's a gap during that period. Um, and that's when, you know, when I was working at XXX, we had a couple of big projects on. And so, you know, I was quite focused on those because they were really interesting. And, and that person pulled out uh, of the interview process. And the reason he gave was that from what he read, it looked to him like it was an organization where you didn't get personal time. If there was a big project on or if it hands to the deck, it was like your personal time was lost because you couldn't do your hobbies or something. And that that actually wasn't what the person was saying in their blog, but that's how somebody interpreted it. So you kind of need to know what's out there and you need to do those audits uh, of maybe what's being said about you on social media, but also need to be aware that people's interpretation of what they see might be different to what you're trying to put across. I think that's really interesting to hear, especially the fact that, you know, the organization can't control what people are saying on social media and you don't even know what's being said, but potentially using kind of social listening tools or just being aware of what's out there about you in the space will be really beneficial to the organization. I want to pivot slightly now and get your opinion on remote working. This is something that was so prevalent during the pandemic, but we are starting to see large organizations bring people back into the office at least a few days per week. But when it comes to recruitment, anecdotally, I've heard people saying if they're approached about a new role, they will either want a much higher salary or they'll want full-time remote because that's what some companies are offering at the moment. So how can organizations kind of compromise to allow people the flexibility they want and they need, but also achieve their overall company goals? 
Um, we could probably do the whole podcast on this, although I'm I'm not. Although I talk about this a lot and research and write about it, um, there are obviously people who do a lot of deep dive research into this. So I can I can plug three episodes of my own podcast, if you like, uh, where I talk about this uh, with with people who've either done research or written books. Um, I think I mean the first thing, the first two things I would say in the whole area of kind of remote, flexible, hybrid, and asynchronous working is that it it's nothing new. Uh, I was involved in quite a big research project in 2018 where we uh, surveyed 14,000 job seekers across 10 European countries about a whole range of things, what they look for in the next job, why they choose one company over another. And the opportunity to work flexibly or remotely or high, uh, from, from home uh, almost two thirds said that having that opportunity would lead them to choose one company over another. In fact, one of the papers we wrote from it was called Is the Future of Work at Home? And that was in 2018. Um, so it, it's nothing new. Um, it, there's been a general, you know, since mass digitization and since since the 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 whole world of work has gone digital. Um, yeah, the, the ability to not have to be in a specific location has grown. Um, it was something that was on people's minds. Uh, and obviously the pandemic has, has kind of accelerated that. I then have to caveat that by saying, certainly in a country like the UK, and I suspect it's not dissimilar in Ireland, you know, something like 60%, 60-61% of people can't work from home. They're in utilities. They're in healthcare. They're in construction. They're in kind. Of, so it, it is. It is the minority of the workforce that is impacted in this way. But it's a significant minority because you know they're the people who it, it tends to be white collar knowledge worker type uh, roles, and they're the people who spend all their time writing on LinkedIn and writing on stuff about how great it is to work from home and why they need to work from home. Um, so it, it, it's. I think that it. Part of the um, difficulty, I think, it is that the, the it's being able to give people the choice they need for whatever reason, um, but that that doesn't uh, impact negatively on the business. So there's there's not really a one size fits all. The I think the big the the two or three big things that I would point to are firstly that about connection particularly for people who are newer into the workforce or uh, or newer into a, an organization having joined within the last six nine months say um it's the connections they make historically within the business which is, is how they get settled and integrated and it's how they learn you know the old this is how we do things around here kind of thing um which is much harder if it, they're working remotely um Hybrid is obviously slightly different because they'll be inflexible because they might be in an office or in a location with others sometimes and then not others. Um, the other point that I always make is about um, dedicated space, that it's easy. I mean, for someone like me, you know, my son, it, our son is grown up. He's left home, although he is back at the moment, as, as some people find. Um, but I've got a room to myself that I can use as an office. Uh, but if you speak to four people, five people flat flat sharing, um, they're spending the day working in their bedrooms and the night sleeping in their offices. So you you kind of have to, I suppose, look at that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that 
um, if somebody is working in that way, where they're effectively working from their bedroom all day, you can't uh, give them the opportunity to work flexibly and remotely. Uh, but it's to, I think, the personal side. It, it, we need to balance that. Um, but I think it, it's it's one of those debates that will go on. Um, and I think that it's down to individuals and individual organisations to come to a compromise. And you'll probably find that most organizations don't have the same kind of approach. They don't have the same kind of um, uh, uh, view of it. Uh, and they will allow people at different times. Um, and that I think is the, it's the connection. It's as long as you can still connect, you can still collaborate uh, and you can connect in person because there's been a whole, a plethora of research uh, around the time of the pandemic about the differences of connecting um, over a screen and in person. Um, and obviously it's quite different. So I think it's, it's obviously one of those things that's on the top of HR's agenda, um, but it, it, there's no one size fits all solution. And in some industries, it will work in some organizations, in some locations and towns, it will work. The, the, you know, the big metropolises uh, maybe have better transport links and so maybe it makes more sense for people in other locations to spend more time at home and less time commuting. It it very much is not a one size fits all. Thanks very much, Mervyn. I want to stay on the topic of flexibility. And I guess that while, while a lot of people think about working from home as a solution to offering people flexibility, it starts before that, and it starts at the recruitment phase. So during your session, you mentioned asynchronous interviews, allowing people to answer questions in their own time. So what are some ways that employers or talent specialists can start allowing people some flexibility, even from the beginning of the recruitment process? Um, I can. I mean, that uh, I, I have seen it work. Uh, I think I gave during my session an example of some research, although I can't actually remember the exact figure, um, that uh, a company was finding asynchronous uh, interviews, which is where you basically set a number of interview questions and then the uh, candidate logs in and answers those questions at a time that suits them. And the the background information, this is often uh, screening in maybe the earlier stages of the interview process, and that they had shared data that, that, that indicated that amongst one of the two most popular times uh, that people would log in and answer their questions was between six and 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening, which kind of in a way makes sense you know the week's over if they've got a young family it's they've had dinner they maybe maybe kids are in bed or whatever um sunday is often the quiet night um and so it makes sense that that, that, that is when some people feel comfortable enough and relaxed enough to actually sit down in front of the screen and answer some interview questions but of course we would never interview somebody you would never schedule an interview for six o'clock on a sunday evening um so it, it's it's i think again it's it's to do with flexibility there's not a there's not a one-size-fits-all solution but i think that um to get the best talent and that's what everybody hopefully listening is trying to do for their organizations we 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 have a, we need to be a lot more flexible in how we uh, approach the recruitment process and asynchronous interviewing particularly in the early stage maybe the screening stage or whatever um is is uh one way in which 
you know, otherwise, I mean, I can go back to the start of my career. If you wanted to do an interview, you had to shoot out the office uh, at like six o'clock in the evening, find find your way to somewhere else, uh, and, and then kind of you're rushed, your 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 minds on what's happened, and obviously you don't do a good interview. Um, so it, it, it's it's giving people, I suppose, more control to represent themselves, because job applications are very personal, uh, and it, we don't know why people are applying. There could be a whole plethora of reasons. Uh, it might just be that they need a new challenge. It might be they're the main breadwinner in their family and they need a better paid job. It might be, you know, they might be unemployed. There are a number of reasons why people are applying, and it's giving them the chance to be able to, I suppose show themselves and their knowledge, their skills, their capabilities uh, and their potential in the way that's that's best for them. So I think that we have now, obviously, a number of different approaches to interviewing. I mean, it obviously still happens in person uh, or, or over a screen. Um, but I think there are something like an asynchronous interview, which if if anybody listening haven't really invested in that or tried it, often brings quite good results because people will tend to answer those questions at a time when they're a bit more relaxed uh, and they might um, yeah, give you a bit more information. So once people have gone through the whole recruitment process, they've gotten the job, they've joined the company. I think that being able to upskill and continue learning is a major reason why people stay in an organization or stay in their role. And as things like AI become more prevalent and more useful in everyday work, there are certain skills that are really necessary, things like leadership, things like communication. So how can an organization build a culture of continuous learning and development and make sure that people are gaining these skills that are really necessary for the future of work? Um, people people want access to skills and knowledge. Uh, the number one reason and all the research I've been involved with and I've seen uh, will show the number one reason why somebody will join a company and stay is if they have the opportunity to grow, to develop and to learn new skills. Uh, particularly in, I suppose, the modern uh, workplace where skills are the currency. Um, and we have so much technology now um, that enables uh, uh, organizations or individuals to find out how the skills are, what, how good the skills are in certain areas, uh, where they could upskill, where they could improve. Uh, AI now gives uh, on on talent intelligence, talent management platforms. It will point people in the right direction. It might say, you know, you need more uh, knowledge or yeah in this area, and point them to a course or point them to something online. It, it's we we people if they're not learning and they're not moving ahead, that they won't they won't stay. Uh, and to make and to, and to help them stay, you need to give them access to that knowledge. Um, and we now have the platforms, and I know it's a huge investment in tech, obviously, but we now have the platforms that enable that to happen, uh, and particularly skills, capabilities. I mean, a lot of research coming out in the last six, nine months from some of the big tech suppliers shows that this, this kind of, you know, individuals want to build skills. You know, one of the early lines in, in the book Digital Talent that I co-authored and published last year was that, that, that digital talent has intellectual curiosity. Uh, they know that their skills uh, are, are changing and developing and they want access to the knowledge to help them do that. Um, and, and we're finding that a lot more. So it's 
Um, I've seen, I suppose, a couple of things. Um, one is the concept of career experience managers, uh, which I've seen uh, in some organisations uh, where somebody, rather than, because we talk about you know, talent acquisition, HR, learning and development, we, we sometimes look at organisations uh, along traditional structures as opposed to a bit more holistically. And the idea of maybe a career experience or talent experience manager is somebody who oversees all of this side. So it's kind of how are they developing? What is it that people want? Where can they get the access to this knowledge? Is there a course? Is there something? Is there a development? Is you know all the different things? But to make sure that I talk uh, about uh, moving from an era of, of management and direction to one of support and enablement. Um, which is what we're seeing, and I cert certainly, in, through my research, seeing in organisations where we used to talk about you know, performance management and, and we used to sit down and tell them where they were going wrong. And now it's about support enablement. That's what, you know, the, the technology is there. People can access it. Um, a lot of the research coming out uh, globally for 2024 shows that, you know, the, the individual uh, employees, the individual workers are the ones who really want you know, skill building. That, that's what they want to do. They want to build their skills in the areas where they feel they need to know more and the areas where they feel they will need to know more in the future. Um, so I think this is, again, it, it's uh, it, it's as opposed to something that we did at specific times. Okay, you've been here for a year. We'll put you on a course now or that, that kind of attitude. It's now something that is ongoing 24-7-365. And again, we need, and I know that means an investment in tech, but we need to be able, you know, our people need to have access to that knowledge as and when they need it. Thanks very much, Mervyn. The final thing I want to touch on is talent mobility. And I think it goes hand in hand with learning and development. And a lot of people go into a role with the idea that they might get promoted within a year or within two years, whether that's the correct idea to have or not. And after four or five years, they're still sitting in the same role. They're wondering why they're still there. And they're potentially being told that they can't go for other internal roles because they're really needed where they are. So what can organizations do to help people within the organization make lateral moves or moves upwards or really just promote the idea of internal talent mobility? Um, well, I won't give you a, a technology answer because there are a, a number of really, really good platforms that enable this within organizations. Um, I uh, did some research on this a couple of years ago and uh, about the barriers to internal mobility. And pretty much they're all cultural. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 some of the um, things that we were finding out were that, you know, managers, some managers, I suppose, uh, right, I'll go back one step. Uh, you've got talent hoarders and talent producers amongst your management and senior management. So talent hoarders are people who want to keep the best talent because they're producing, you know, uh, their, their team is, is, is beating all expectation because they've got these great performers in there. Um, but the problem with the, the, the problem with hoarding talent is talent will then go, you know, if they want to do something else, if they want to stretch themselves, they won't feel that, that they can do it within. So the first advice I always give is to reward managers for producing talent, not for hoarding it. So if you have somebody in your team who you help to develop and then moves around the organization, achieves great things, that's better than having a high, a high performer in your team who gets frustrated and leaves. 
and then leaves the organization as a whole. Um, there is a kind of there is also at director level uh, a, a kind of mindset that it's almost a bit unfair that, that, that some way internal mobility is a bit, a bit like favoritism. Um, and that there, there, there's also a feeling that we that, that, that you know you need to keep bringing in people from the outside because they'll have different perspectives that have had different experiences and they might be able to bring a few nuggets with them that that can change the way you do things. Um, I think those are are kind of cultural, but not as important. I think the most important thing is to for your people to know that they do have. Yeah, they do have the ability to move around within an organization. You do have a platform or some kind of tech or some kind of knowledge system that you know what their key skills are, that they can go in and update that and they can say, this is this is where I'd like to develop my skills or yeah, I'd like to do more about that. I'd love to take a project. Um, you need to also, uh, there's a model that Gartner put out, which I think I shared the other day you know, about adjacent skills. So rather, you know, it tends to be we need somebody to do X, therefore we'll find somebody who's done X before. Uh, and then we say, well, no, let's promote somebody internally who's already doing most of X. Um, but it's actually looking at someone um, uh, that, who's, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, if you're looking for somebody to go into marketing, you go out to find somebody from marketing team. But you've probably got somebody sitting there who at the weekends and in the spare time runs another business, is a marketeer on social media, social listening and everything all the time, who would love that opportunity to actually move into a marketing team. And so it's, I suppose, having that kind of uh, open, open skills taxonomy base, if you like, within the organization where people uh, are aware of what skills and knowledge are in the business and how it can best be used. Thank you very much, Mervyn, for joining us today on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. And thank you to everyone for listening. Please do join the conversation on LinkedIn, tag us and let us know what's working for you in your own organization's talent strategy, what isn't working and what you're looking forward to implementing in the future. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.